Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, I'm sharing an interview that I did over at the Socratic Method podcast, hosted by our new friend, Noah. He is recording his very first episodes, and once he has a bunch compiled, he's going to release that podcast, and I'll get you guys links to that, because I think what he's doing is really fantastic. So, this is uh, my interview on that podcast, now on this podcast. Hope you give it a listen. It's on our favorite topic, the fourth way of Aquinas. Hello and welcome to our first episode of the Socratic Method podcast. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, aka Mr. Jake Busher. If you didn't know already, which I'm sure you do by the way, Jake is the host of the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast and website on which he covers philosophical, theological, cultural and economic topics from a Catholic perspective and does so in a really fun, light-hearted but exceedingly informative fashion. It's absolutely fantastic. If you haven't checked that out already, then be sure to check out his stuff over on the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast on website. <clears throat> Jake, thank you so much for coming on and volunteering to be our guinea pig here on the first episode of the Socratic Method podcast. With that being said, Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Noah. I appreciate being uh, being the guinea pig. That sounds fun to me. I'll never pass up such an opportunity. So thanks for the invitation. Oh, no worries. It's my pl- my pleasure having you on. What are you up to in life right now, Jake? Oh, my goodness. Well, today, not too much. It's a it's a rainy day, so I can't do too much outdoor construction. Uh, so I'm taking the day off, relaxing, thinking about philosophy, uh, all that good stuff. Yeah. Oh, what better what better way is that to spend the day? None, none, none. Um, so, so Jake has very kindly volunteered to help us navigate our way around Aquinas' fourth way. So, Jake, I've got to start by asking you, what was it that got you interested in this argument and what in particular are its main advantages that you think? Right. So I remember reading The God Delusion back when I was in high school. It was it was all the rage back then. So I read it and I still remember the lines where Dawkins seeks to refute the fourth way, uh, saying that it would also prove a uh, what is it? A ultimately stinky stink, a maximally stinky stinker. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, So I was in a way inoculated against the strength of this argument. And I had never heard it really defended um, in the public square. Nobody ever even mentioned it. So that was my first exposure to it. When I got interested was when I was invited to do a talk um, at what's called the Museum of Philosophy and Science, uh, which didn't have all that much to do with philosophy or science, but um, kind of their own unique brand of new age something. So I was invited to uh, to do a talk on the life and philosophy of Aquinas. And I believe this actually a little bit before I had become Catholic. So I dug into a lot of Aquinas's work. And of course, I wanted to present um, our understanding of classical theism using the tools of the five ways of Aquinas. And looking into each, I was continually impressed with what I found, with the intellectual rigor um, that 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 was present in each of these ways as he breaks it down later in the Summa and also in his other work. But when I came to the fourth way, I was flummoxed. This just seemed like a bad argument. I didn't understand how he leapt from one premise to the next. I didn't understand some of the principles he was relying on. And I made the decision that, well, maybe I wasn't the dumb one, or maybe he wasn't the dumb one. Maybe I was. Maybe I just 
was the problem and I needed to study it further. So I started looking up academic work on it. And honestly, a lot of the academic work, I don't think made much sense. Um, so I really molded over a lot. Um, I remember I would take, uh, uh, take trips up onto the, um, it's called the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's a wonderful place for cycling. So I would cycle the parkway. I'd kind of consider, mull over, and kind of talk to myself. I probably looked insane, but that's fine. Um, and thinking about the fourth way until I finally feel like I, in a sense, cracked the code. There's still a lot I'd like to dig into and learn. Um, but yeah, once I kind of saw the solution to it, I couldn't unsee it. And it became my favorite of the five ways of Aquinas. And uh, I've been defending it and uh, trying to make it more popular ever since. What I really like about the argument is once you do understand the premises that it's resting on, you'll find that those are actually not obtuse, but pretty obvious. And um, there's not actually that many steps to the argument. And finally, it proves a lot about God in one step. Oftentimes we lay out an argument for somebody who might be an atheist or an agnostic and they say, fine, 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 whatever. There's a first cause, whatever. But that's not God. Right. And of course, there's plenty of ways to unpack how, say, a first cause is actually the God of classical theism. But it's not immediately obvious to people because we don't seem to have said enough about this first cause. But the fourth way is different. Because we're using things like goodness and truth and nobility, which we'll find out Aquinas seems to mean one's level in the hierarchy of actuality, particularly the actuality of being. So nobility is something that's a little tricky. I think that's what he means. I pull that definition from um, the Summa where he's speaking of matter and form. I think question uh, three-ish or something. So if we get to a being, which is the cause of all truth, the cause of all being, actuality, perfection, and goodness, most people would say anything which is actively causing all of these features of reality and has these qualities innately to itself in a fully simple, self-actualizing way, well, gee, that's a really good candidate for God, and we don't have to spend quite as much work in that second-order argumentation. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make a really persuasive claim about. It's, I think you make a really persuasive case about all of your claims about the fourth way, which was why I thought I had to film this episode with you. Is because when I overheard you make your case for the argument on the classical theism podcast, I just thought the exact same, the exact same thoughts that you said you started off with, where you kind of think, "Oh, this is a bad argument." This is a bad argument. And then you reflect on it and you think, is Aquinas the dumb one or am I the dumb one? And ultimately, there's only one way that that can go. <laughs> and as soon as you accept that, you're kind of like, okay, I've got to do a bit more digging and and listening to you and how you presented it and, and how you kind of brought it to life um, through things like hopefully we'll get into them later don't know spoilers but say the salt analogy oh sure that type of thing when you, when you bring it to life you, you see that these aren't crazy metaphysical claims they're really quite commonsensical little steps that as soon as you start accepting you see where they're going and yeah and it can be easy to look at some of aquinas's um, examples and because they're pulled from a different understanding of uh, physics than our time it can kind of mess up what we think the argument is saying. So he uses 
heat uh, or he uses fire actually and we're like fire really we know fire but what are you doing with fire and the answer is well that for him that's one of like the the like the big elements right there's fire and there's wind and there's water etc so it's just a very different and confusing um, way that he uses things which we're familiar with but we're not necessarily familiar with how he's familiar with it so i find it's very helpful to update a couple of his examples but to be true to what he's trying to um make clear so i typically use salt um redness uh the number one um a variety of things like that i've also used energy in uh, in other defenses because actually if anything that would be the closest to his conception of fire it seems so yeah 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 definitely yeah. it's helpful to clear up a few of those things because they can lead you a little bit of astray yeah no yeah i i find them super useful when i i've heard you give them up before so i think if it's all right with you i'll read out the fourth way in full Sounds and i'll good. hand it over for you to uh bolster line by line if that's all right cool let's go right so aquinas's fourth way the fourth way is taken from the gradation to be found in things among beings there are some more and some less good true noble and the like but more and less are predicated of different things according as they resemble in their different ways something which is the maximum as a thing is said to be hotter according to as it more nearly resembles that which is hottest so that there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something which is uttermost being. For those things are great for those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, as it is written in the metaphysics. Now, the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things. Therefore, there must also be something which is to all being, all beings, the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection. And this we call God. So now, Jake, <laughs> I'm going to hand it over to you, the expert, and we'll go into more detail. Great. Yeah. If the listeners didn't already believe us that uh, it doesn't sound persuasive at the start, I think they believe us now. So let's look at a few things which he leans on. One is he starts this whole thing off talking about gradations, right? He's saying that there are some things which are truer or more good, or what he's really getting at is things which have more and less being. So this is one thing he's leaning on. The other thing he's talking about is that the maximum of a genus is the cause of all in that genus. So if we have these two big points, we'll pretty much get the fourth way. So let's start with gradation. Here's an example I like to use. Let's say um, you have um, you have some uh, Chinese food and uh, you're terribly disappointed in it because when you try it, it's just too salty. And one of your friends says, what do you mean by that? And you say, well, it is too much like salt. That's what salty means. And you say, I've tried other Chinese food. It was less salty. This is more salty. Now, you and your friend might conclude that if Chinese food in general can be more or less salty, that means that it doesn't have saltiness by nature. Instead, it seems to be borrowing its salty or saltishness from something further, right? Because that explains the gradation. If it was just the thing which defines what it means to be salty itself, then there wouldn't be a gradation. It would just be that thing. 
So maybe you say, all right, well, why is it? Well, I got the teriyaki chicken. Maybe it's teriyaki sauce, which is salty in and of itself. Well, if you found that there was things which are more and less salty, which were in the teriyaki category, then you'd know that you hadn't found your actual stopping point. Or else, if you found that other things could be salty or like salt, but they didn't have to first share in the nature of teriyaki, then you would know that, well, maybe I haven't found the final explanatory reason for why my Chinese food is too salty. Because after all, I just had a, I don't know, um, a pretzel that was too salty. So, so it didn't taste like teriyaki. It didn't have to first participate in that form. So I have not finished my search. Then you go on to soy sauce and then you have the same problem at which point you arrive ultimately at the only stopping point you can arrive at, which is it's too salty ultimately because of the salt that was included. And you could ask, well, why is the salt salty? And you'll find out, well, it contains within its nature the reason for its own saltiness, which shows that this is the only place to stop it. We didn't hit a circular place. A circular would be something that points outside of itself and then back to itself ultimately in a big circle. Instead, we have something which explains a certain aspect of existence, in this case saltiness, through its own nature. This is the only place that we can stop and stop for good. So now we have two categories of things, things which borrow this quality, which are get it from something else, and things which have it in and of themselves according to its own nature. And the gradation stuff allows us to understand which category we're in. Because all salt, if it truly is salt, is just maximally or completely or fully salty because it is salt. But teriyaki sauce, soy sauce, and your Chinese food are gradations of what it means to ultimately have the nature of salt. So they're borrowing the power of being salty. So that's what the gradation stuff is doing in the argument. And I've already hinted towards this principle that the maximum of a genus is the cause of all in that genus. And we don't need to get so stuck on this. I've used the example of it doesn't mean that your Chinese food is too salty because there's a giant block of the most salty salt floating in space, beaming saltiness rays onto it. No. And it's not because there's some most salty thing which is magically imbuing it with the form of being too salty. It instead means that there's something about the thing itself in which it participates in a pattern of intelligibility, which we call salt, uh, saltiness. And that would be the thing which is salty by nature. So if I could rename the fourth way, I might call it the argument from ontological referent. It's kind of like if you're building a spreadsheet in, in Excel and you define one of the squares as, I don't know, the number three, or you define it as a word and then you reference it later. Well, then if you deleted that original point of reference, then everywhere else you could not have that factor show up. So that's what we're really doing here. It's not a cause in the way that we typically think of it. It's actually a uh, subcategory of formal causation. It's exemplar formal causation, whereby if we deleted the ability for something to be in existence, which was salt, then by extension, nothing could be like salt or salty. Does 
Salty just means like salt, delete salt, saltiness is impossible. Ergo, the maximum of the genus, that which just is by nature the thing, is the cause. Because if you remove it, there's no way to participate or be like it. So that's what Aquinas presents us um, with, these two big principles. Now, the way he, he looks at goodness and truth and nobility, which is kind of a stand-in for one's level of actuality or um, level of existence itself, is we can apply the same stuff. There's nothing in the nature of salt or the color red or the number one that means that it has to exist. We could have had a world where salt didn't exist. And there was indeed a time before salt existed or red existed. There could have been a, a possible world where there was nothing in existence and nothing instantiated the number one. But there's, it's not necessarily the same when we get to goodness, truth, and being. Why? Well, because as we'll learn a, a little bit later, uh, goodness and truth are philosophically convertible into being. And the maximum of the genus of being, well, it does contain the reason for its own existence. Because just like the maximum of the genus of salt contains the reason for its own saltiness, that appeal to its own nature, it's not circular, it's the only privileged stopping point, then the maximum of the genus of existence just is existence with a capital E or being with a capital B and contains within itself the reason for its own existence or being and therefore cannot fail to exist because it contains the reason for its own existence within its own nature. So that's something which must exist and then causes any type of limited existence or goodness or truth in other things. Um, what do you think of that, Noah? Do you need any clarifications or you want to dig into any other parts of that argument? I don't think I need any clarifications, but I think I could throw perhaps a couple of objections. Sounds um, some smaller ones, perhaps more common, more commonly sure. asked questions. Um, what would you say to somebody who might say that those gradations we observe are relativistic? gradations they aren't objective elements of the world it's just that if i say something is better well it's just a relativistic subjective opinion not an objective fact like like aquinas would need it to be to conclude that there is some maximally great true being yeah totally so this one really looks at the um at his argument from goodness and i think oftentimes we we have a we have a reflex to reject any type of claim of subjectivity. However, I think we need to be a little bit more careful here because there are such things as subjective truths or um, things which are good subjectively. So there are, let's say, a truth that is objective would be, um, let's say this one is true, and I think it is, that chocolate ice cream is, is good, right? That could, that could be true. And it could mean that the chocolate ice cream indeed is good, right? That's an objective fact because the truth claim is rooted in an object, the chocolate ice cream. However, I could also say something a little bit different. I could say, um, I love chocolate ice cream. Now, this is actually a subjective fact. Now, that doesn't mean it's just loosey-goosey and has no grounding. Instead, it's grounded in a subject, 
me, my first person conscious experience of desiring and liking chocolate ice cream. So in that respect, if people are talking about desirability with respect to their own privileged um, point of view vis-a-vis -vis the goods of the world, um, well, sure, we can have a subjective goodness. And interestingly, when Aquinas defends that goodness is convertible into being, um, it certainly surprised people that he looks at desirability. So in a sense, he's actually using subjective goodness. So here's basically how he would run that argument. He says that the good is that which all men desire. But when we desire something, we're actually desiring things insofar as they're perfect. So just to put that in, we want something that meets or perfects our need or want. So I don't want just terrible chocolate ice cream. What I want, my desire is actually oriented towards perfect or complete chocolate ice cream. Not when they forgot the chocolate in it, not when they forgot the delicious cream in it. I want a fully complete or perfected chocolate ice cream. Okay. So this perfection or completion of a thing is transferable into our notion of goodness. Because when I say it's desirable, it's that's a way of saying it is good. And if I'm saying it is good and desirable, what I'm targeting is something that is perfect or complete. But here's the interesting thing. Aquinas goes on to say that the completion or perfection of a thing means that it is fully actualized with respect to its mode of existence. So now we have goodness equals this type of perfection, which equals the full actualization of one's potential to exist in a various mode. So we now have goodness equals the act of existence, and the act of existence is another way of saying being. So we do have the gradation of goodness, and we've started from the subjective camp. But for those who might say, well, can you do it from the objective? Well, yes, we can, Noah. Yes, we can, because I can look at something's objective mode of flourishing. For instance, I see a tree, and I know that in order for it to have the fullness of treeness, it's going to need water and sunshine and things like that. So if we have something with a various uh, form, a, uh, a, a what it is-ness, then there is a way for it to be perfected or completed. So actualized with respect to its mode of existence. And you see we're following something very similar. So it would need that water and sunlight, et cetera, in order to be fully actualized with respect to its mode of existence. Therefore, we have the actualization of something's mode of existence equals this goodness. And therefore, we have another way to link goodness directly with existence. Whether or not we're using an objective or a subjective um, means of viewing the subject. Yeah, I think that's a really, really useful explanation. Um, perhaps another objection I could throw at you to bring you back to what you said at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned Dawkins' stinky stinker objection. Sure. Where where does that go wrong? Why does that fall apart? Yeah, you know, I, I, 
I think I've been a little bit more more charitable with that one, and I think we should be because, as I showed with the salt example, um, the form or the very pattern of intelligibility of salt does mean that salt explains its own saltiness. So if it's true that there's like a form of the stink, I don't know if that's true, but let's say there was a form of the stink, then it would explain its own stinkiness, just like um, the uh, nature of number one explains its own unity or red explains its own redness. But where he gets very wrong is we don't, we're not really looking at those qualities. We're not really looking at those kinds of things. We're looking at things which are convertible into being. So there's no reason that stink has to exist because stink only entails its own stinkiness. Stink does not entail its own existence. Goodness and truth entail um, existence. And that's what Aquinas is pointing out. And existence, well, that straightforwardly entails its own existence. But stink does not. Stink does not. Yeah, I think that's a, a, use, a useful way of locating where Dawkins goes wrong in moving moving from the fact that stink existing would explain its own stinkiness, but not its own existence. Right. And so he, he, he goes way off the mark when he starts, uh, you know, trying to get the reader to think of a, a maximally stinky being and that type of thing. And he's just way off. Mm-hmm. And, and like you say, I think all that shows is he stinks at philosophy. Precisely. <laughs> Precisely. He's not a terrible biologist. And honestly, no. I think his best quality is as a writer. I think he's actually a great writer. Yeah. Yeah. Good scientist. Good writer. Eh, bad philosopher. Yeah. And unfortunately. That brings so. us right back to gradations. <laughs> sure, exactly. That's that's really true. And, you know, I haven't talked. Speaking of truth, um, it's really funny. You know, I like that you brought up the the uh, the argument that well, can't good just be subjective and whatnot? And a lot of people attack um, um, the goodness idea and how that uh, can't necessarily you know have gradations, etc. But um, fewer people attack the truth one, and I'm glad that they don't for their sake, because if you say that the fourth way fails, then you're saying that your understanding, your concept of the fourth way of it being a failure is more true than my understanding of the fourth way whereby it functions. So in order to make any type of argument against me, you're going to have to believe that your statements and that your worldview, that your understanding is more true than mine. Otherwise, how on earth are you, what are you doing launching an argument? So the nature of argumentation and the nature of seeking to refute argumentation entails a gradation of truth. So, I, I mean, that one, I think, is even, if anything, even stronger than the argument from goodness. Absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely in agreement there. And I think that's, uh, I think hopefully for, for any listeners out there, hopefully they're slowly seeing how the, the pieces of the puzzle are coming together and it's slowly getting harder to, to deny some of these premises without, like you say, kind of taking their own legs out from under them. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Another objection then that you might face or a defender of this argument might face is that previously we've been talking of the maximum of a genus mm-hmm. causing all that is within that genus. But 
perhaps a more educated person might say, well, according to Aquinas, God isn't in any genus. So how, how can he be the seeming, how can he seem to be the cause of anything in any genus when he's not a part of one? Right. Yeah. I, li I like this objection because um, it comes from inside of the house, as it were. Um, so Aquinas does clarify in his, um, uh, in, in the question about the convertibility of uh, goodness into being, um, reply to objection th three, I think. Um, he says that uh, goodness is a form. And um, however, it's not any type of form. He says it is a form in so much as it is the um, I'm trying to quote as best I can, uh, the, the maximum of the actuality of existence. So Aquinas himself is using the term genus and form in a little bit more of an analogical way, because it's true that God's not like in a genus, even in the genus of being, but he means that in a narrow way. What he means by that is genuses contain or circumscribe um, what types of beings they can be. So if I talk about the genus of crab, I'm going to say it doesn't have fur. It does not have live birth, right? So I'm drawing some lines around it, and I'm saying it can't cross this line. So what Aquinas is saying is that God's not contained in a genus as if there's something that stands above him that limits him. Okay, but he does feel comfortable talking about a form or a genus if we understand that the limiting principle, quote unquote, is not extrinsic to God, but intrinsic to God. And that's true, right? So God is limited by nothing other than himself, and he in and of himself is unlimited. Ergo, well, he's fully infinite all-powerful, fully actual, eternal, right? So he's limited by nothing but himself. So in that case, the genus is defined by his godness, not by something extrinsic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. On that topic, am I all right to get your circle analogy and the kind of the set of polygons uh, example? Sure, sure. I, I do think I used the wrong terminology in my, my argument. I think I called that a limit simpliciter, but it's actually, I believe, a limit case. So I got oh, okay. this too. Okay, I great, because yeah. you just saved me from asking the question with that <laughs> in. With that in, I'll, I'll, I'll let you explain that then a bit further and, and the terminology. Sure, yeah. So, you know, we look at uh, the way he's, uh, he's causing his various creatures, and it's very important to note that he actually breaks out of the category of creature. He's not one of the creatures. And I like the analogy that if we look at a circle, we say, what is this most like? Is it most like a triangle? Because it only has one side and triangles are the polygon with the fewest sides. Or is it most like something which has a ton of, of, um, of sides? So we just keep on adding sides to our polygon. It looks more and more like a circle. So if we're to place the circle amongst these polygons, would it go at the beginning or would it go at the end? And that's kind of a similar problem to what we have with God. We see things which are more complicated, having more actuality. So we're much more complicated than just like a hydrogen atom. We have more actuality, but we have more proverbial sides. 
Um, but there's an, another sense in which the hydrogen atom is anything that's more like God because it's more simple and God is fully simple. He's not composite with no parts of uh, potentiality, you know, metaphysical parts, obviously no, phys no physical or metaphysical parts, right? So where do we place him? And this is where I think the scriptural language of the Alpha and Omega come in, not just with respect to temporality, but also with respect to his actuality in the order of existence. He does truly belong outside of the set, whereby the set points to his nature in both directions. So he is actual, kind of like complex beings, um, that we see in the order of nature, though he's not complex. And he's also simple, kind of like the simple beings that we see in creation, though he is all powerful. So he represents what's called a limit case of existence, whereby he's not contained within the set, but he somehow transcends the set. Yeah. And it's funny how you ended that because that's what I was just about to come in and say. I think that was a really useful analogy for, further understanding the idea of God's transcendence and like you say you get you get somehow it's it's quite strange I think really how you get closer on every single side and every way that you go um which is quite which is quite weird to me personally but I, I thought that was a really good example with the circle how you see it how you can start with a triangle and in some ways that's the closest but you could keep adding sides and it gets more and more like a circle, but at the same time you just get further and further away because every side you add is a side more than the circle. Well, I'm pretty sure I stole that analogy from uh, our good friend, John DeRosa. So shout out to him on that. Oh, one. I didn't, I didn't know it came from him. Shout oh, out yeah. John DeRosa, oh yeah. Then. Absolutely. Oh, it's a great, it's a great analogy. <laughs> John DeRosa, if you want to come on the show, shameless plug. There uh, you go. <laughs> no, um, circling back to something you mentioned or something I think is quite key and this is where I have to give give some more credit to you because you have a really useful website once again go and check that out if you haven't already to any listeners you've got a disadvantages of the fourth way section that made my job a lot easier and I think <laughs> it's it's really useful um and two two of the disadvantages you mention on there and I think this is correct by the way is that you've got to know what a transcendental is Mm -hmm. And the modern materialist minds don't really operate on platonic style arguments. Yep. I think both of those are very true. I think I fall into both of those categories, probably. Um, and I would like to ask essentially about what, kind of what is it that allows the transcendentals to be convertible with being? Because I think that's quite an important premise of the argument to stop... Um, to stop criticisms along the lines of the maximum of goodness would be one God and then the maximum of truth would be another God mm -hmm. and so on. So I think the fact that these transcendentals are philosophically convertible with being is quite key. So what, what is it that allows that if we could delve into that? Right. Yeah, good. So we kind of talked a little bit about goodness, but let's zero in on, on truth. So let's take, uh, let's take two statements. One is, um, is uh horses exist and the other one is unicorns exist which let's assume unicorns in no place in the universe exist um we gotta ask the question what makes these statements true like there's a sense in which both of them are true so for horses it's because there are actual horses that the concept of horse 
is something that you and I understand. And it's actually in reality. So we can say um, horses exist. But then we know what a unicorn is, but it exists only conceptually. So it can be true that we can say uh, unicorns exist, but we would really have to add, but only in our imaginations in order to make it true. So what we're seeing here is that both of these statements have a truth maker and the truth maker in both cases is existence. But one of them has a higher order or more existence than the other. The horse has more existence than a unicorn. Both, um, both of these statements can be true. Ergo, they have a truth maker, which relies on something being in existence. The, um, you know, this is leaning on, I believe it's Boethius who says, uh, truth is the equation of intellect and being, though you find similar statements um, throughout philosophy. So that's how he converts truth into being. We find that in order for anything to be made true, there has to be an existing truth maker. And then in my example of the unicorns and the horses, we find that in the grouping of truth makers, there are some which are more or less in existence. Ergo, we can say that these truths, unicorns exist and horses exist, are more or less true, since they more or less track the amount of existence these things have. Um, Aristotle also makes another example. I think this is uh, book five, five-ish of the metaphysics, where he offers the analogy of, I think it's two plus two equals four, two plus two equals five. And then I think he may have added another one, which was like two plus two equals a thousand, where we are tracking the actual real answer here. And then we can lay out these in the order of truth. Two plus two equals four is the most true. Two plus two equals five is closer than two plus two equals a thousand. So we can get gradations of truth whereby they get closer to actually picking out and describing the actual thing in and of itself, in this case, the number four. So those are two different ways that truth links directly to being and is, well, therefore, convertible into it. It's the truth maker or the ability for it to match something which is in reality. That is very useful for why truth is convertible into being. Do you have anything on why goodness and kind of perfection is convertible with being? Right. Yeah, that's because what we're, let's say that you are um, incredibly hungry after this, uh, after this interview. So you, you lack something and that's the hunger, hunger signal itself. It's saying you lack food. So you have um, what's an imperfection and you seek to be perfected. Well, for your hunger or for a tree's desire to uh, desire, in quotes, to have sunlight or for a little rat's desire to have a little hole so that he can live in there. Each one of those um, needs something and there's something in common for all of them that perfects them, causes them to be complete 
And then there's something in common to the, the hole that the rat gets, the sandwich that you get, um, the sunlight that the tree gets. There's something in common with the thing that's given to each of these beings. Now, the form is not in common, right? The form of sandwich, though, that's not necessarily something with a form because it's not a, sub a substance. But the let's call it the form of the sandwich, the form of the little rat hole, the form of the sunlight. All these forms are very different, but what they have in common is that there is existence given so that you are perfected and so that you are actualized more fully in your existence, which I think, well, I probably should have explained this a little bit earlier, but when we're talking about forms and existence, oftentimes people imagine that there's like form stuff, which is like this magical, invisible um, you know, form making powder that we sprinkle on, say, material or on existence. And then we kind of get this conglomeration of things. But a better way to think of it is a form limits existence. So we're coming up on Christmas. And I don't know if you do this in jolly old England, but a tradition over here is to make sugar cookies and to stamp them out in different shapes. So if you can imagine that existence is the sugar cookie dough itself on your counter, then you can stamp out a shape of a Christmas tree or of a snowman. So the thing which you're stamping it out with actually limits or stops the sugar cookie dough from going any further. That's what a form does. It defines the edges and it stops existence from going out. Now, let's say you're hungry and you're eating a, uh, a snowman-shaped cookie or a Christmas tree-shaped cookie. The thing that this always has in common is not the shape or the form, but the cookie. In the same way that that tree which needed sunlight, you who needed the sandwich, and the little rat that needed his little rat burrow, well, they all were desiring things that were cut out of existence. So they had different forms. That The existence was limited in different ways and shapes, such it was defined as a different thing. But what they were all actually desiring was some cutout of existence itself. So that's how uh, goodness is convertible into being. Yeah, I think that's useful. This is perhaps just, just off the top of my head. Goodness then and truth are both convertible into being, but they're not directly convertible, are they? Well, it depends what you mean by directly. So um, they, um, they are different. So we can view being in a variety of logical ways, which are indeed different. Um, however, they're grounded by the same thing. So let's say we talk about a triangle. I can talk about it as a triangle or a trilateral. And trilaterality and triangularity are not the same thing. However, they're both made to be triangular or trilateral by the one thing which just is the shape triangle. So that's what's going on with truth and goodness and nobility. These are three different modes of understanding or ratios of understanding being itself. Now, they actually relate to the three parts of the person. So when we look at existence, and our will is operative, it views existence as the good. 
right? Be and that's what Aquinas is leaning on when he talks about desirability. That's a movement of the will. And then when we look at being with our intellect, then when we perceive it through this power, it is understood as true. And finally, we have, and this one's a little bit more tenuous, we are subjects. We're not just objects because we are, we are persons. We have a first-person perspective of being, right? You know that you exist and you know that other things exist, right? Because you are a subject. That actually, your conscious first-person perspective puts you in touch with the nature of existing itself, you know that you are, I think therefore I am, is a conscious first person reflection on the immediate understanding of one's own existence. So that conscious first person respect, uh, perspective shows being as being, the intellect being as truth, and the will is the being as goodness. And by the way, um, for Christians out there, we have Trinitarian theology actually maps onto this very nicely because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is called the Logos, which is the intelligence and intelligibility itself. So he is the truth and the life, right? So he relates most properly to that unlimited infinite being under the ratio of truth. And then we have the Holy Spirit is the cause of sanctification which is the perfection of us into even the theological virtues. So that most properly relates to the good. And finally, the existence, the, the one God, the Father Almighty. Well, that is the being who actually begets the Son through an act of self-reflection whereby with omniscience and all power, he fully and thoroughly knows himself as himself, such that his conception of himself, using Augustine's philosophical analogy, is the begetting of the Son from all eternity. So that's like that first person conscious understanding of being, which is the Father himself. So these map onto the Trinity. They map onto the three parts of the person, which should be no surprise because we are made in Imago Dei, in the image of God, and they map onto the various ways that we can understand being in the created order. That was a beautiful mapping of Trinitarian theology onto the transcendentals. That was that was impressive stuff there. <laughs> Wonderful <laughs> to let people in on it. That was not that was not planned. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! I yeah. don't think I've put that into any articles I've written. However, I've yeah. commented on that throughout various podcasts. Pulled that one out before. Oh, okay. Well, no, I uh, I hadn't heard that one. No, that was fantastic. Just to just to then circle back, perhaps once more before before we get on to perhaps my final objection. When you were mentioning how truth is philosophically convertible into being, and you gave, I think you quoted an an example from Aristotle and his use of mathematics of 2 plus 2 equals 4, 2 plus 2 equals 5, 2 plus 2 equals 1,000. How would you respond to people that say that when you're claiming there was a gradation, it's not so much that there's a gradation, but rather 
these things are kind of more like a binary kind of on and off switch. Things are either true or they're not. They're just false. There's no gradation. So two plus two equals four. That's true. Two plus two equals false. So it's two plus two equals five. Sorry, that's false. Two plus two equals a thousand. Also false. There's no gradation. It's just a binary on or off switch type thing. So I'd actually go ahead and agree. Right. So I, I'm going to say that's true. Right. That you know, we're using the word truth, but so yes. So I'd say yes to all of that. And I think Aristotle's making a slightly different point. He's not claiming that the five is like, is true and a type of truth. He's saying it's closer to the truth. So it's like imagining um, we go out and we decide to, uh, we decide to go target shooting. Okay. And we put out the, the the target at 200 yards and we, you know, we're, we're sharp shoot, shooters and we put one dot. All right. We put one bullseye out there and now uh, I shoot and uh, I I'm way off. I hit a tree. OK. And then we have uh, we, we have um, a friend of ours come over and say, dude, you, you're terrible. Let me let me try. And he shoots and it's right outside of the bullseye. And then you say. Let me show you how it's done. Take aim, boom, and you hit the bullseye. Well, then we can say that me and your friend didn't actually hit what we were aiming at, right? We were the equivalent of just being wrong. But any onlooker would say that I'm a terrible shot, your friend's a pretty good shot, and that you nailed the target. So that's a gradation of accuracy, even though, well, some of us just plain old didn't hit it. So that's what he's doing. He's saying that we're looking at the accuracy of nailing the target, which is that thing which actually exists. So the guy who got the four nailed the target. He hit it most directly, and therefore his statement is the closest. And then going on out to the person who hit a thousand. That's what, but I do. So he defends this in the metaphysics, and I think this is a perfectly. Um, reasonable way to explain it. But that's why I actually prefer laying out um, cases like the unicorn, the horse, the set of all facts, um, and comparing different things which track different levels of being, like truths about your shadow versus truths about the, um, the, uh, the nation of England, right? I think that that's a little bit more easy to understand gradation. But I still think Aristotle has a point here and that we could use this argument, but I like to deploy in both. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. I was just trying to play a bit of bit of devil's advocate kind I of love it. I, I, I think it. it's a bit it's about the nature, I think perhaps more about the nature of kind of maths and it being quantifiable that allows it it allows you to initially think at first glance, you can think, oh well. There's no gradations here. It's just true or false. Whereas I think the gradation, I think you're right in what you said about the gradations being much more clearly observable on, you know, in other examples such as the unicorn horse example or truths about people rather than just, you know, atoms of hydrogen, say. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that we should be able to talk about in the other, I guess the third method I like to, to look at this with is, um, arguments themselves i think we have to accept that arguments um as such are one thing um at least in some sense otherwise 
they can't actually connect premises and let us arrive at a conclusion. And I think that we can talk about arguments which are more and less true. So that would be tracking being again. So it's really the big one for me is when you seek to deny that truth tracks being or deny that there's a gradation that if anything gets you more in trouble than uh, than anything else with this one so I, I really think that trying to deny the truth equals being um is a little bit harder so yeah does that make sense yeah that makes sense that was really useful thank you all right what and... other objections do we have all right i'm ready for them no i'm loving the... them. you're pulling out some great ones Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, you dealt with a lot of them already on the on the website, which was perhaps a bit irritating at the time, but uh, but great to, I also great to tried read them to, more in depth. Yeah, I tried to put, for some of them, multiple answers, because I think there are multiple answers, and I've tried to do, do that here. I think that we can, I mean, I've laid out with three different ways that truth is convertible into being two different ways for how goodness is convertible into being. I think it's really helpful to have a variety of options um, because sometimes, I mean, people are weird and, and in one argument might not just strike somebody as true um, or it might not fit perfectly into the conversations one have one's having. So laying out a few options for objections, I think are great. I mean, Aquinas uh, will do this occasionally though. He'll most commonly split those objections and then answer them. But yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's very true. I think um, that's what I particularly loved in some of your earlier clarifications as well, such as the salt analogy and so on, is the multiple options that you provide are really handy, I think, for striking to different people's intuitions, mm -hmm. ultimately. Because um, like you say, people are weird. I think they, they grasp different things more intuitively. And it's kind of, it's about finding one that hits with someone's intuition and they just kind of go, yeah, I get this, this object. Yep. And that's the one that makes it work for me. Totally. This reply to the objection is the one that makes the most sense to me. So no, I think it's a, a clever strategy, but when I'm trying to think of new material and you've dealt with all, all the different ways of responding, it's, you know, makes it hard. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no. So the, the new objection, this was the, this was the one. I'd, I'd flirted with this idea a little bit. I thought it was worth throwing out to you. It wasn't on the website. I thought I'd try and bring a new challenge for you. All right. Um, so, and this is the objection. This is Kant's, it's actually a critique of the ontological argument mm -hmm. for the existence of God. And it's Kant's critique. Uh, it's very famous. It's the idea that existence is not a first order predicate. So in other words, Kant kind of says that existence as a property is a purely accidental one and it can't be part of something's essence. So to try and explain that a bit more, imagine the example of a coin and trying to define what it was. You might say that the coin was metal or it was shiny, but to say that it exists adds nothing to that concept of a coin because you could just as easily picture it or define it without saying it exists. So existence kind of seems like a completely accidental property. Now, the reason that I thought could become problematic for this argument is that since the conclusion of Aquinas' fourth way and Aquinas' third way, 
come to the idea of there being a necessary being. Essentially, I guess I'm trying, I'm trying to stay away from the term of necessary being. I'll try and bring it back to more the fourth way. It's kind of, if God would have to exist necessarily and, and ground all other things in their being, it seems that he would have to exist by essence. But if mm -hmm. Kant is correct in saying existence is not a first order predicate, it can't be part of something's essence, it's just a purely accidental property, then it might allow you to say, well, the God that this seems to prove is an impossible one. It's not one that can actually exist. So they're just somewhere along the line. There must be a mistake made. Right. Yeah. No, I love that you brought up this one when, yeah, I, I, I okay. Th this is great. So, and I appreciate you giving us a little bit of um, Kant text, if you will, with the, <laughs> with the coin analogy. So, Basically, what he's saying here is that, um, you know, as you said, we can say things about the coin. And if we say that it's copper or it's or it's red or blue or large or small, all of these things are commenting on its whatness. Right. And he points out that if we say the coin exists, this does not modify the notion of whatness. Right now, I think this is true. Right. And I also like that he's actually doing a little bit of work for us. He's saying that of all the things out there, there can't be anything with um, it's it's uh, with it's isness as it's whatness. But I think we'll find that there is one thing. But his critique serves as a great way of eliminating all created creatures or any finite thing from being that which um, grounds all reality. So he would be quite friendly to the idea that, um, say, an atom or a superstring cannot have as a property the fact that it exists. So I see this critique also cutting against, say, naturalists and materialists who would want to say there must be like a physical thing, which is a type of thing, which as a type of thing, just plain old exists. I think the critique that Kant puts out seems to cut against that. Now we'll find that his critique, I don't think actually works against our conception of God. But just to clarify again, he's saying that when we say is, we're not modifying the whatness of a thing. Instead, existence is the prerequisite for it just being the type of thing which is really instantiated in reality that we can make true statements of and that can then house properties like being red or blue or stinky or whatever else, right? Now, here's what I think is going on with God. Oftentimes, now in the ontological argument, we try to move from the whatness of God to the isness of God, Okay. And Kant's critique seems to say, well, hang on, his whatness cannot include as a predicate his isness, because the isness does not modify the whatness. Now, this is kind of a subtle point. So here's the, here's the turn, listeners. What we described in the fourth way was not arguing about the whatness, 
we were going directly into being via goodness and truth and nobility and actuality, things like that. And then we were arriving at a maximum of isness. And the isness is what we mean when we are describing the qualities. So we're actually pulling the qualities out of the isness, which is unbounded in God. We are not trying to pull the isness out of the whatness. I don't know if that was clear because that gets a little, it, it, it sounds both simple and complicated at the same way. But I'm going to point out that our arrow is going in the opposite direction of the ontological argument. We are not saying that the whatness implies an isness. We're saying the isness, if it is entirely unbounded, implies a whatness, which is unbounded isness, which seems true by definition. Yeah, I think that was quite a useful way of of showing. Like you said, I, I think that was a really useful way of showing how the arrow is not moving in the same way as the ontological argument. And um, and many philosophers believe that he validly took down the ontological argument. But like you say, I think you I think you provide quite a good case that. It, although it's a good criticism of the ontological argument, it might not quite cut Aquinas' fourth way down. Right. And let me throw one more out. The sugar cookie analogy, if people didn't quite catch what I was saying there, there is no sugar cookie shape which entails that it cut that it was cut out of a sugar cookie, right? Like you can say, oh, that's the shape of a snowman. That's the shape of a, of a, of a Christmas tree. But I don't care what you say about the shape. That does not imply that it indeed was cut out of the existence slash sugar cookie dough, right? However, if we go the opposite direction and I say, um, actually, there is, we're talking about the dough itself and there is no limit to it because there's nothing cut out. We're not talking about cutting something out of the cookie dough. We're talking about the dough itself uncut out and in this case an in infinite so that's what we're that's what we're doing here so he's right that there's no sugar cookie shape that implies it was cut out but if we're talking about the dough itself then it implies that it does have a quote-unquote shape which just is synonymous with its its extension as dough or in this case existence and this existence if it's not limited by anything whatsoever is purely infinite and then possessing of all the divine attributes precisely god god the mighty sugar cookie liking it <laughs> i hope nobody starts worshiping sugar cookies <laughs> we already have this the with the flying spaghetti monster if yeah. i just prompted some type of cult i i i i repent <laughs> yeah i mean definitely yeah i would start repenting if i were you i think i think i, I think god the god the mighty sugar cookie has a bit of a bit more of a ring to it as well it does sounds like a christmas song yeah <laughs> go go for a chart topper <laughs> it's it's funny as well by the way i think that you mentioned how Kant's critique actually somewhat starts to cut against naturalists and materialists because i actually also thought um his critique could be interpreted in our favor as well when if you agree with what he states 
that existence is a purely accidental property that really articulately explains how there are gradations of existence in the things we observe mm, it's mm -hmm. precisely because it's a purely accidental property and then once again i think that therefore also allows you validly to go further like you say where you don't move from whatness to isness it allows you just to focus purely on the isness you can start from his idea that existence is a purely accidental property and then just trace that line of isness back up and say well what allows these gradations you know yeah yeah definitely and i mean i i will kind of add for the thomists who might be pulling their hair out um hearing you know existence as an accident i think we're using that a little bit loosely here you know accidents adhere to a, a substance and the substance is something which exists and given a different form but i think that in the more loose way of what what kant means which he's not necessarily using all the um aristotelian or, or, or thomistic language then i think what you said is totally right yeah, please pull me up on any language. I, I <laughs> Forgive me, Thomist. I want to be like you. I'm an amateur. Forgive me for any language sins I have committed. Um, like I say, I did actually kind of get that summary of the uh, objection off Google, so it might not have been the most most Thomistically linguistic. Thomistically linguistically accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. I, so I apologize. No, no, I I, I totally get the <laughs> there. It, it's just the thing is, it, a lot of these terms are used in a variety of ways by a variety of traditions. So you, sometimes you just kind of throw out there that. Yeah, so, I will, I'll also take some blame off Kant as well. I think that might have been my summary. I'm not sure he might have put it exactly in those terms. So I'll, I'll take the blame. I'll take the blame. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not a Kant scholar, so I, I can't tell you exactly what he was yeah. saying there. But I do think that 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 argument seems to take down most if not all versions of the ontological argument which i've been thinking about a little bit and i don't like very much um but yeah no i, I but not the fourth way not the fourth way not in my opinion i think um yeah i, I mean i'm in agreement with you there i uh, i think the other thing perhaps worth just clarifying maybe just to put me back in favor with any thomists again <laughs> would just be um perhaps if you've got another five minutes, do you have another five minutes? Sure, no problem. Just for the last five minutes, if we could just perhaps talk maybe about the kind of Thomistic notion of God, because I think that's right. maybe another way of avoiding Kant's criticism would be to say that even if Kant succeeds in showing that the property of existence can't be included in anything's essence, I think Aquinas has quite a neat way around this, that in God, there is no distinction between essence and existence, which kind of then allows you to accept what Kant says, but then to say, but in God, it's not that existence is part of his essence, but rather that there is no distinction between the two. And that's what allows you to, just like you say, just focus purely on the isness you know, there's no whatness and then link to isness. It's just because there's no distinction between the two. It's just isness the whole way up. 100%. Yeah, that's 100% true. Yep, yep. No metaphysical distinctions. His 
his whatness just is his isness. This is all wrapped up in what it means to be a fully actual, entirely infinite, all powerful being who exists through his own nature. Mm -hmm. Oh, can I slam some wrong versions of the fourth way? I don't think I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I'd add whatever whatever you want to add. Okay. Okay. I I just got to get this off my my chest. I'm going to hurt some feelings of some very good philosophers, but um, (laughs) have you heard the versions of the fourth way that use the notion of being uh, of like a, of people being taller or shorter? Have only you... only from the the uh the classical theism podcast episode that you did where that you kind of toyed with the objection that oh gotcha uh, so i've already slammed this well let me it makes it, it it makes it um sound as if you, you kind of you mentioned that it, it's like a, the straw man where people think aquinas is saying that the tall whoever the tallest person is they're making you to be whatever height you are, you know, let's just say six foot one or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. And you know, there is even, there's an organization I like, I won't call them out cause I'm, I'm just a nice guy, but they actually put out a whole video trying to explain the fourth way and they use the example of tallness and that's just wrong guys. Stop it. Other philosophers. And here's exactly why um, they're saying that the tallest in a group of people is tall without qualification, whereby everybody else is a gradation of tallness. So they're, in this case, less tall than the tallest. And then in this respect, the tallest person is a cause of the others. Not that he made them to grow, but instead he's the cause of this gradation defining the maximum. Now, this isn't the wrongest thing ever, but it's pretty wrong. Here's why. Because tallness is a relational property. It is not something like well, what we talked about earlier, like, like salt. That What we're talking about with salt, salt has a real nature, right? It actually has a form. Or if we're talking about, I don't know, redness, etc., it has a nature or a form. There is a pattern of intelligibility which is red such that if we somehow got lifted up into a platonic heaven if such a thing existed and we saw red in and of itself we would see the maximum of redness which defines the set that's different from tallness tallness is a relation between existing things there is no such thing as the form of tallness none right and because of that we can't have a maximum in that formal sense of tallness there is no form of tallness it's simply a relational property ergo we can't run a um, we can't use that as an example in the fourth way yeah i think that's a useful point to consider that it is a relational property right so we we got to kick those relational analogies out yeah. Instead, we need to use something which has some type of, of, of form, because that's what we're getting at. Aquinas says that goodness is a type of form, so long as we understand that it's ultimately the, the form of goodness is, is God himself, an unlimited act of actuality. So, yeah, that, that's my critique. You hear that A as a straw man, and then B amongst its actual legitimate serious defenders. So, um, yeah, got to point that one out.
Yeah, I think I think that was where really succinctly pointed out. Actually, I think you, you dealt with it in a better way than I was imagining. I, I was just thinking you were going to clarify that it's not the tallest person in the group that makes the others their height, but actually to focus rather the, rather more generally on the fact it's a relational property overall. I think that yeah, a useful useful way of of dispelling with that straw man. Yeah. Well, you're actually totally right, too. There's nothing wrong with the, the way you were thinking there, because, yes, the tallest person does not cause the tallness in the rest. And if they looked more closely at Aquinas's own example, they're looking at heat. And that's being caused by fire. Now, the way that fire and his understanding would cause heat is actually becoming in a way par like part of the composition of the thing right he would believe that when you see a burning coal that is glowing because fire is in it therefore it it glows it's, it's burning right so well how does that relate to to tallness it doesn't seem to now in now in what respect does goodness and truth and existence come into composition with things well we're not positing some type of um of pantheism where we are God, but we are saying that there's a real sense in which God is all present and we are in quote unquote composition with existence and therefore God in the sense that, and there are a lot of qualifications here, which deserve their own podcast in the sense that we have an essence we're, we're rational animals as Aquinas would define or as Aristotle and Aquinas would, would define us and then we have an act of existence so that act of existence is similar to the fire which is now causing something to be hot and that act of existence the little slice of existence can also be understood um, under uh, you know through the will is good through the intellect is true or through that understanding of being as being um yeah, through the conscious first-person perspective. So, yeah, I think it really falls down when we look at the the composition aspect of both Aquinas' analogy and the way that God causes us to be. And again, there's a lot of complication here, and I'm not going to say I'm the world's foremost expert in the exact mode by which God has his um, um, omnipresence. Aquinas famously says it's, it's essence, power, and something else. Um, but yeah, I do want to have that on the table. Yeah, that was really, uh, yeah, really useful. Um, that's the, that's the end of my objections. I think you've successfully got through the hurdles of everyone, Jake, I think. Woo, we survived. Awesome. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. No, absolutely. Um, so thank you, Jake, for all your time. I think you've been an absolutely fantastic guinea pig. If I, can, if I can use that label again um, I'm hoping sure. to have the technological prowess to link to your stuff in the description of this podcast but awesome. if I can't for some reason then please any listeners go out and check out his stuff over on the Cutting the Gordian Knot website and podcast for yourself that's spelled Gordian being spelled G-O-R-D-I-A-N that's G-O-R-D-I-A-N uh, Jake, is there anything you'd like to add or anything you want the viewers to know? No, I think you summed it up, Noah, and you were a fantastic host. So I very much greatly enjoyed this interview. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Hopefully something again in the future, perhaps. Thanks Absolutely. for being a great guinea pig. And until, <laughs> until next time, be sure to use the Socratic method.
Of course. God bless. Bye. Bye-bye.